0: Aaron and I want to start with a really big heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full-time, and this is this is a full-time gig on top of it, and we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet-talked the folks with SpeechTherapyPD.com, and as a thank-you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever-so-handsome goose and a bear, and that person will get a free PodCore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed, plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday. And the short course, nine series long All Things Ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC SLP, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy in Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey, and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fed, fun, and functional categories, and I want to place a bit of extra special emphasis on the functional side there, because the lovely Erin and I are taking on tethered tissues. Dun, done, done. So if you're in the cut all the tethers and oral motor exercises or the ticket camps, well then get your tomatoes ready, folks, because that's not what the evidence tells us is to be done. So right out the gate, I'm going to share that fact. Make no mistake, there are certain cases where tethered tissues need to be surgically addressed. However, these few cases, and again, I am using that word few with emphasis, are just that, few and far between. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where we are all seeking a quick fix. But here's a large truth that, no pun intended, is hard to swallow. There is no such thing as a quick fix for pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And I'm thinking that most of us already know this, but fear of being talked about and ostracized at work for not sharing in or participating in the culture of chewy tubes, laser cuts, and oral motor exercises prevents us from speaking up and out. Fear sucks, y'all. Pretty sure that's one of the reasons I ended up owning, opening my own practice because I needed to follow the evidence and be free to encourage and uplift others to do so without breaking that unspoken rule of violating a non-evidence-based culture. So, yep. Consider Aaron and I evidence-based practice rebel rousers. Ha <laughs> ha It's quite a fabulous little island that we live on, Aaron. Don't you think? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Definitely feels a little isolating some days but I think that we're going to make it. <laughs> okay, so um how are you doing since the um the new norm and the great pause has started? Are you are you liking your your new norm so to speak?
1: We're surviving. Teletherapy is very different. I can't run around with all my patients and throw myself on the floor when they have you know their tantrum on the floor i mm-hmm. it's been difficult but but I feel like I'm learning a lot. We have to find different strategies and give our parents a lot more confidence in their ability to carry out these strategies and and help their kids. I think yeah. that's a good thing.
0: Um, I I have to say I'm – and I know I posted it at the butt crack of dawn this morning, but um, I'm – a huge part of me is actually enjoying this pause. Mm -hmm. I mean I'm behind in every goal that I had wanted to finish up because homeschooling is really, really, really hard. And this week we're doing pints and quarts and cups and bloody hell like I don't know these things and I cook all the time. But like – but um, that being said, I don't know – the last time ever since having children that I have spent this much time with our boys. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think I realized how independent Goose had become. Um, I don't think I realized how how hard this was on them either. Because yesterday Goose was like, Mom, I just, I just feel like I need a good cry. I miss my friends. And I was like, all right, Bubby, then just let it out. And as soon as I acknowledged it, he was like, yeah, okay, I don't need to cry anymore. I just, I just missed them and I needed to say it. And I'm like, yes, we are wow, all way more in
1: tune with his emotions than most men.
0: Yeah, I know. It's seven. <laughs> Woo! All right, Goose's future wife. I have sent you for success. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, then there's Theodore who had a freaking meltdown because I cut his hair last night and I cut it too short. I mean, to be fair, I was chasing him up and down the steps because the little pieces of hair kept falling. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the worst haircut. So go team. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm
1: usually like a runner. I run away from things. I am very, very good with change. So this force of like, okay, you moved. This is your home now. Figure out how to enjoy your home. You don't need to be going places consistently and visiting all these people and always out and about. So it's, challenging but good like okay this is your home
0: yes well and you have the perfect Romy to cuddle with sorry Romy's a giant dog y'all in case you get excited that she's she's found the man we're on the hunt oh, god. he has to pass Pack Dawson application standards <laughs>
1: <laughs> moving
0: on <laughs> I love you oh my god I miss you okay all right so here it is we got we got a lot to cover today everybody all right Aaron. I feel like let's start with the basic anatomy and then we'll start throwing in word vomiting all the research articles. How about that? Okay. Do you want to start? (laughs) Um, Do I want to start? Hmm. All right. Let me preface this. One, we we need to bear in mind that Facebook is not the medical answers to all the things. And if you see a HIPAA-compliant picture of a um, what is being toted as a tethered oral tissue issue on Facebook, you are seeing it in isolation. You are not seeing it in use or in function. You can you you can't tell how that's going to impact pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, or if it will impact a pediatric feeding and swallowing disorder. And Um, Just to get another thought out there, we're not talking about ARTIC in today's episode. Um, So if you're looking for guidance on ARTIC, come back. We got one planned with a certified um, orofacial myologist in the future. That's not today. Today is all about the suck and the swallow. Um, So there's that one. Okay. So you were telling me before we get started some really um, um, neat anatomy research that has come out lately. Um, So do you want to
1: start there for us? So this article came out last year, I think in June, um, defining the anatomy of the neonatal lingual frenulum. It's out of New Zealand and um, California. I think the um, ENT that worked with a lot of the research was from San Diego. And they talk about, This is, they used, um, I think there were four cadavers um, of newborns and specifically we're looking at their anatomy around the lingual frenulum. They talk a lot about how we've looked at that with adults, but have never dug deep into the anatomy for infants. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very interesting because of, all of this research that we like on our side, on the speech side, all of the information that's going around about tongue ties, when in reality, what do we have all the information about the basic anatomy?
0: Um, to even identify it as a tongue To tie. even
1: identify it. Because the, the big things that stood out to me in this article, I mean, there's a lot of really awesome pictures, even in these four cadavers that they looked at there were very distinct differences as far as um they they defined their appearances in three different ways there were some that were more transparent some that were more opaque and they kind of talked about that was related to the mucosa and the fascia how they came together um but what the big thing that they talked about was, um, and let me make sure they were all premature infants, just to clarify Mm -hmm. that. Um, and when they went to, when they dissected, they talked about how there was no discrete midline connective tissue in the floor or mouth of any of the specimens. Um, they had a layer of fascia spanning from the tongue across the floor of the mouth.
0: Hang on. Fascia or, fascia or fascia her a's and my a's are different um basically it's a band of connective tissue it's collagen y'all and we have fascia running throughout our entire body okay so it's it's supposed to be there and um it's it think it, think of it as kind of the connector okay sorry
1: mm-hmm. go um no that's okay and this is like the dry stuff just to start for people mm-hmm. um and it was on the floor of the mouth inserting around the inner arc of the mandible, and all of them, tongue retraction and/or elevation mobilized the floor of the mouth fascial layer to form a midline fold of variable prominence um with a more well-defined mid-sagittal vertical fold created when the frenu- where when the frenulum fold inserted higher on the ventral surface of the tongue. Um, they talked about how. Before it was defined, and I have the exact quote, because I don't want to mess it up. Um, how a frenulum has been defined as a distinct fold of mucous membrane formed beneath the undersurface of the tongue, midline submucosal connective tissue structure, describing it as a string or band. And the biggest thing they talk about in the study is that it's not just a string or a band. This isn't just one string that connects the tongue to the mandible. This is a all of these factors connect and work together. Um, it's intricate. to create the tongue mobility. It's intricate, so that's why we have to be careful with just clipping the tongue because that that connective part right there might not be what's causing having causing issues with tongue mobility. It might be the way that the fascia can like that. they the way they're connected at the base of the tongue. There's it's a, it's a really good article. It's, um, it was in clinical anatomy. We'll, we can
0: we'll screenshot it. This. Yeah.
1: We'll screenshot it. We'll um, we'll
0: put it on. We'll put, um, some of these really good articles. Um, if you can screenshot it, Erin, then we can put it on the first bite Facebook page.
1: Yeah. It's, they also, um, one thing that I just want to mention and, cause I don't think we go that much into I don't know if we'll go that much into posterior tongue tie, um, but the, what they talk about in this study is that the the phenotype, which is what when we look at the tongue, we people will equate to a posterior t- or a grade four tongue tie. Um, it's it's not really that's not the correct terminology. Um, they say that the it's it says that it's based on the it being caused by a midline submucosal band, which this research shows is incorrect. The biomechanical impact of division of the fascial layer in this subgroup is yet unknown, but further targeted research is warranted to objectively measure changes in tongue mobility and creation of intraoral vacuum post-phrenotomy with assessment of impact for individuals with different variations in frenulum morphology. So they say that the posterior tongue tie is anatomically incorrect nomenclature and that we should stop calling it that because of the, what indications they found in the tongue anatomy. Beautiful. Okay. I'm sorry. There's a lot of quotes, but I didn't want to get it wrong.
0: <laughs> no dude. But that's, that's, I mean, it's dry, but the, but it has to be because I mean, it, it is what it is. Um, okay. Yes. We need to, to share that one. All right. But here's, all right. So normal variations. All right. So um, you're going to have um, different width, different height, and all of that is normal. Okay. Um, so when you see a, um, when you see the pictures, again, you can't tell how it's actually functioning for a suck swallow cycle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in order to see it in function, you need to get an instrumental swallow valve done. For our infants that are breastfeeding, I highly recommend, and part of this episode, we will, I'll be dipping in and out of my CLC, yet, okay? Um, you need to see it with um, a, a fees, um, and, and you can't really see uh, the actual swallow or the tongue movement, but you can tell whether or not, you know, they're actually pulling the milk in before premature spillage and how it looks afterwards or an instrumental if they're able to sit upright for a modified. OK, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because then you'll actually be able to see the functional component here. OK, um, other different variations in basic anatomy, um, we have the lip, the um, labial frenulum. And <laughs> I remember distinctly Um Uh, goose one time he was running around outside and I bear in mind, I breastfed both my kids and, uh, I had a patient's mom tell me one time, well, the doctor says he has a lip tie, but not to worry, he'll just like bump into something one day and then it'll rip. And I'm like. Um, that sounds really crass, but like, all right, cool. And I mean, I didn't think that the lip tie was what was going on with this kiddo and their poor suck swallow cycle. I mean, the child had had, um, perinatal CPA and a whole bunch of other things happened. So we had a CP diagnosis coming down the wind, but, um, anything like that weekend she put it in the universe, goose tripped over his own feet and split his, um, labial frenulum. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> Like and he it wasn't tied down tightly into his teeth, inhibiting um uh brushing of his, you know, front two teeth. I mean, it was just present because it has a purpose. Okay. Um, okay, let let me just like clear the air and throw some of these factors out there. Um If you get on Feeding Matters' website, they have um, on feedingmatters.org, check out what is a PFD, a pediatric feeding disorder. And um, their conservative evaluations estimate that pediatric feeding disorders affect more than 2.3 million children under the age of five in the United States every single year. Okay. Okay. Um, they have some of the greats in our nation pulling data for them. Um, And at the end of that page, down at the bottom, they talk about, um, they have all the different resources and it's, um, it's mind boggling. Okay. Now there's something that we need to understand. This tongue tie debate is um, it's a trend. It's a pendulum. Okay. And it rears its head every, um, every so many years, uh, in correlation to an increase in breastfeeding. Okay. Um, and I'm going to put this notion out because we have time now. Okay. Think back to your life especially to the mothers that are listening, to the women that are pregnant, that your life is about to change as you know it, to the women that are adopting and your life is about to change as you know it. Okay. Being a mom consumes a large quantity of time. How different does your life look today versus what pace did you keep three months ago? Right? Now I know three months ago it was January. It was cold. But I mean, what did your life look like last Easter when you were running around? What did the week leading up to Easter look like or week leading up to Passover look like when you're trying to tackle all of the things? You didn't have time to sit still. Right? Breastfeeding is hard because you have To allow time for, one, mom's postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. Um, The fact that giving birth is the closest you come to dying when you think about how many pints, there's that word again, thank you, Goose Danger, Dawson's math, um, how many pints and liters of blood your body loses in the act of delivering, and then you're expected to wake up and start breastfeeding or bottle feeding and caring for that little one who If they're premature, even 36 weeks, they don't have their sucking pads developed, which is crux for developing a proper um, uh, suck-swallow pattern. I mean, if you don't have those buccal suckling pads that are supposed to be there, a normal anatomical um, factor, then it's going to be harder to build up the intraoral pressure. Plus, there are five stages of a swallow development. Hang on one second, as I flip through all 400 articles that are up here. Done, done, done. Development. This is a fantastic article. Um, development of Suck Swallowing Mechanisms in Infants by Chantel Lau, L-A-U. Um, it was featured in the Annual of um, Nutrition and um, Metabolism um, hang on one second, 2000, July 4th of 2015. Okay. Um, and, um, she outlines and does a beautiful job describing the five, um, uh, sucking patterns. Okay. I won't get bogged down in the weeds, but it's there. Okay. And here's the catch. When you have to rush to get back to work, when you have to rush to take care of the other children, you don't get that bonding time to recognize those first hunger cue developments. Okay. The very first hunger cues, and if you're listening, this is why I always recommend um, everybody get their CLC, at least if you're doing pediatric feeding and swallowing. The first hunger cues that a kid gives you is wiggling of their fingers and a slight rooting in their bassinet or crib or on your body. Okay. We miss that because we're not there, because we're not, um, with that child. I mean, colic is a Western Europe. I'm sorry. Yes. Western Europe and American um, uh, diagnosis. If you go to cultures where they actually wrap their infants and carry them on them all the time, they don't have a term for colic because guess what? Those infants are always there. Okay. I got really long-winded, Erin. I'm so sorry, but I'm so frustrated with all of this. But like, OK, so like that's that's a lot. OK, so other normal anatomical variations, a Taurus palantinius. Um, OK, also, Aaron, I didn't sleep last night. I was up from like one till like almost four. Um, and I was thinking about this. My family, um, were registered padawamic and um, rumored to have Cherokee as well. Oh, DNA tests will tell. Um, but um, my dad actually has a Taurus palantinius, which um, is a, um, it's a little bony outgrowth in the top of the palate of the mouth. Um, and one of the other interesting um, factors is Uh, That's supposed to believe to pass through Native American um, lineage and to help, um, especially like um, (laughs) tribes that were around and consumed a lot of shellfish, um, oysters and those because it helped crush things in the top of their mouth. It served a purpose Mm -hmm. um, from an anthropological perspective. Also, the back of our front teeth, run your teeth, run your tongue against the back of your front teeth. Do they go straight down or are they like concave?
1: Mm, a little little concave i
0: don't know um mine are like super scooped those are normal variations that also have to do with like where everybody everybody is like running the top of their tongue behind the back of their teeth but like those are also just normal variations okay well Um, i just
1: want to say this and we should have started this episode with this quote as lingual frenulum is present in almost all infants, the presence of a frenulum should not in itself be considered abnormal or diagnostic of ankyloglossia. Just, yes, just to as you said, with looking at pictures, I've seen a lot of pictures on Facebook where people post, "There's a frenulum. Should I cut it?" And no. I, just, <laughs> no. I just want to clarify that we all have them,
0: for well, almost all.
1: But that does not—that's not necessarily a tongue time tie. Just—just make sure that we've established that. Yes.
0: Okay. So, all right. I was gonna do this quote later, but my ADD is kicking in, and/or sleep deprivation. Um, hang on one second. Okay. So. An interesting thing, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Ha, just kidding. I love that play. Um, okay, so at Skisha this year, at our annual convention at the awards ceremony, Dr. Um, Debbie Greenhouse, she's this phenomenal pediatrician. She got up on stage and she was asked to speak at our awards ceremony. I don't know who orchestrated her um, to come. Um. She sits on the National Academy of Pediatricians. Y'all, I want to grow up and be her. She's fierce. She's... Um, passionate. She's realistic. She is the embodiment of an educated, enlightened, and empowered female. Like goals, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So she gets up there on stage, and um, she's asked to talk about interprofessional practice. And this is something that we come back to. If you're practicing in your silo as a speech language pathologist, get out of your silo, because unless you're working with an occupational therapist, an ENT um, a dentist, um, a registered dietitian, um, maybe a pulmonologist and a neurologist, then you're not going to be able to actually figure out. And God forbid, I forget a CLC or an, and, or an IBCLC. You're not actually gonna be able to get to the, um, root cause as to what's going on with this kid's poor latch. Okay. So she gets up there and she presents, um, this, um, this evidence on, um, pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And, um, it's insane. And the January, it was the July 11th, 2019 JAMA otolaryngology head, neck surgery. Um, so please go check that. Um, and she sent me, um, the, this amazing, um, reference that went in a little bit more behind the scenes. They stated nearly 63% of children who were referred to a pediatric ENT for tongue tie and or upper lip tether surgery ended up not needing the procedure and were able to successfully breastfeed. All right. Here's the catch. They pulled this sample from a large subject sample. Um, normally, and people will cherry pick their, their research articles, right? Um, don't make or break your article a subject sample of one. But um, this, um, this research article specifically looked at um, Angoglossia. And um, they uh, studied, it was 115 newborns who were referred for a pediatric to an ENT. Instead of just focusing on the ENT, they actually called in and did a, um, a a diverse team and, um, they said 62.6% did not need the surgery. Only 8.7% needed a lip surgery and 27% underwent both lip and tie surgery. Um, in the article, they went so far as to say, I think it was, um, it was was it ten percent or fifteen percent um, where it was actually counterindicated because of underlying issues such as um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea due to laryngomalacia trachomalacia, and um, it would um, result in um, uh, breathing difficulties like severe breathing difficulties uh, so just let that sink in sixty two percent of children did not need their tissues severed. Because they were holistically evaluated and treated with a multidisciplinary team, okay? And this was, um, the research was done at Massachusetts General Hospital for Children, um, their um, pediatric airway voice and swallowing center, okay? So this was some fan- <laughs> It's fantastic because that's what we should be doing. Um, they said, um, and this was kind of scary. There's been a tenfold increase in tongue tie surgeries from 1997 to 2012. We went from 1,279 in 1997 to 12,400. But also, our rate of life has increased, and I get back to the point that we're missing those initial um, cues because, uh, we're not around to watch the children. We're, we're simply not there. Um, okay. So I know, I know we have to like go in, but, um, why do, all right. So have we covered all of the normal anatomy? Because I have some etiologies that I wanted to go through, but, oh, um, um, okay. Glosteopytosis, um, If you've ever seen this, this is common with our individuals that have Pierre Robin syndrome. Okay. It's a posterior displacement or retraction of the tongue. All right. Basically, it looks like what Aaron was saying earlier a posterior tongue tie, but it's not. It is the result of um, how the child was. Um, basically grown in utero. And uh, it's that child's normal anatomical variation. With pierre Robin sequence, um, and when the baby's primordial soup stage in the first trimester, their um, mandible gets tucked up against their clavicle, um, like basically like the most extreme chin tuck you've ever seen, it inhi- forces the tongue to grow up out of the floor of the mouth, pushes in on the soft palate and the hard palate, um, inhibits the soft and hard palate from developing. And, um, by the tongue growth actually causes the mandible, um, it stimulates the mandibular growth plates. And when the tongue is up out of the floor of the mouth, the mandible can't grow. And because of, you know, how this child's developing with that extreme chin tuck, It causes glosteopitosis. It's also very common in our children who have Down syndrome. But here's the catch. If you go through and you cut that, if you cut glosteopitosis without doing the best practice, the best practice is actually to do mandibular distraction, uh, you will end up, a lot of those kiddos will end up needing a trach because it causes the tongue to fall completely freely back thereby obstructing um the nasopharynx and uh, this this is deadly this is dangerous this is this is to quote the bear these are bad choices mommy these are bad choices okay
1: i'm out of breath because well and that like there's a whole <laughs> article um airway obstruction after lingual frenulectomy and it was only two infants but i mean hopefully start because we don't We are very aware of the implications with children with Pierre Robin syndrome that we don't have as many of the, you know, but, um, it, it can cause, it can cause even more problems for them and then force them to have a trach post-surgery because of cutting that frenulum. And there was one more thing I wanted to, um, make sure I highlighted from this article, they talk a lot about using ultrasound to look at tongue movements, especially while breastfeeding. Oh um, that's cool and then in this article, they cite other research how for breastfeeding, tongue elevation appears to be important in creating that vacuum. but what when they a lot of these studies that looked at ultrasound didn't talk about the anatomical variation, so i so they don't can't necessarily base it off of what it looks like anatomically versus what it's actually doing. And they, based on their study, they saw a lot of differences in like mandible size, anterior tongue length, um, dimensions of the hard palate, and the biomechanics of all of that working together. There's not as much research on that. They're saying, how can we necessarily say that it's the frenulum that's causing this these issues with tongue movement and they even talked about a major factor in anterior tongue mobility is um uh they talked about the genioglossus muscle and that that plays a very large role not just the frenulum so i i would suggest everyone go read this article just because their whole point is this one factor, you don't necessarily know that that frenulum is what's causing those issues in tongue mobility, if that's what you're seeing. So we have to be very careful with assuming that that's going to either. And we'll talk even more about, like we talked about with the Robin syndrome, you can cause harm by clipping the tongue. I think we think that it's just an easy fix, but there you can cause harm. Especially
0: what if you're missing? <sighs> okay, so when Greenhouse was up on stage, she was like, I, she was, how did she, she, um, I'm piecing what she said. Cause she was very blunt and which I uh, love. And she was like, look, she was like, I get CLCs that call me. And the infant is like two hours old. And they're like, oh man, well, th- the baby's really struggling to latch because, uh, you know, because of this tongue tie and, and greenhouse is like, I am not authorizing this kid to go anywhere. The infant is two hours old. And we need time to regroup. We have to allow for neuromuscular planning. Also, when you take a CLC or IBCLC course, they will talk to you about the impact of sedation from the um, paralytic. Um, what's the thing they shoved in my spine that made threw off my sciatic nerve? Um, epidural. The yes. epidural and the anesthesia from a C-section. That. We talk about the term snowing. We snow our adults when we like give them a whole bunch of meds. It snows the infants and they have to have time to develop, um, that five stage of sucking. Also, uh, my, my niece, beautiful, healthy little infant. My sister had a small pelvic floor. She, um, broke her clavicle during vaginal delivery. They didn't find out that her clavicle was broken until about a week later. And it, by then it had already started healing, but my sister was trying to breastfeed and she was unsuccessful. I mean, Sammy, Sam, I mean, she's a fair bit of honorary, but I mean, she gets it from my sister. So like, eh. <laughs> sorry, squat, <laughs> but like she was struggling to turn to one side. She was developing Um, torticollis. She was developing torticollis because she broke her clavicle and they missed it. My hometown is a small hometown. I mean, they were going to the pediatrician in King George, right? Like this is, there's like one pediatrician's office in King George. Not surprised they missed the fact that my niece broke her clavicle. Okay. But that again, subject sample of one, but how many infants do you work with have OT and PT because they have torticollis? How many infants and toddlers do you work with that um, uh, the mother had um, gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, and obesity, either at baseline or gestational obesity, and they required blood thinners, and they required all sorts of other factors? Those medications impact that child's neurologic development. How many children do you work with? Do you suspect FAS? Erin, um, what's the term for when it's drug exposure? In NAS,
1: no. neonatal. Yes. Say it again. NAS. In- Thank you. I almost syndrome. Okay. Yes.
0: But all of those factors impact the maturation of that suck. Okay. And before we go anywhere, I want to talk about development of breast milk. Okay. Because a lot of these, and and I know I'm talking a lot about um, uh, uh, breastfeeding, but one of the largest factors for um Um, considering why we should have a lip or tie um, uh, frenulum cut Mm -hmm. is because of pain with sucking. Yeah, But again, we're stressed out, we're rushing, we're rushing to and from appointments, and we don't understand milk development. Why? Because of mass marketing. All right. So you see the infant bottles. If you're not breastfeeding, you can see the infant bottles and they start out at like what, like three to eight ounces in a bottle, a five ounce bottle, or they come pre-packaged and the pre-packaged has um, three ounces. That is not appropriate. We should not be making that much milk right out the gate. That infant's stomach is the size of their fist or smaller. And those are tiny, precious little hands. Okay. Also, I totally cut Theodore's finger, trying to cut his fingernails when he was a kid. It's like the hardest thing you've ever done. Um, Okay. So um, the very first type of milk that comes out is colostrum and it's thick, it's yellow. um, It oozes. It's basically high fat um, and it's not much Uh, If you've ever had, um, if you've ever been a mommy and your baby has been in the NICU Mm -hmm. and the um, lactation consultant asks you to hand express into a spoon, well, we do that because that's a reasonable expectation for the amount that you should get. It should be like a teaspoon or two. That's it. For the first, like, two to four days of that infant's life, okay? Next, your transitional milk comes in. Transitional milk, um, it lasts about two weeks. Um, It's a combo of the colostrum and um, it's transitioning to a more mature milk. Um, During that stage, um, I don't know, for me, I felt like a burn. Some people don't feel it, but I felt it. Um, it's weird the baby starts crying and all of a sudden your, your boobs are like, Oh, we should be doing something right about now. And then your mature milk comes in. And that's normally after the baby's about, um, a month old and, um, your mature milk has two different types. There's the four milk, the basically, um, lack of a better phrase, it's the milk in the front and then the hind milk. And that's after they've been sucking for a steady amount, um, and have a more mature rhythm. But what I find fascinating is that those five stages of sucking correlate to the maturation of milk. Okay. Most infants, most typically developing infants, don't get a steady suck burst cycle until they're about four weeks old. And that correlates directly with when your mature milk comes in. Okay. Because your, um, The way the infant actually sucks on the nipple, it um, releases different hormones in your brain and that relaxes you and allows your, um, I mean, it actually does. It relaxes the mother and allows her milk to come in. But where do our breastfeeding consult happen? They happen in the hospital. They happen in the office. It's sterile. It's uncomfortable. There's bright lights. And then you're asked to whip your boob out and you're still bleeding and you've got stitches and... God help you, you stand up to pee and then you may poo a little because like, what if they ripped your backside? Y'all, I'm not being gross, but like every gray haired mother listening is like truth. (laughs) And like, that was your birth control. Everybody that does not have
1: children, but like,
0: this is a hard period in a woman's life. And again, I get back to that tiny little tether That tiny little piece, just like Erin said, there's so many other factors in that kid's mouth that need to be considered. Okay, another long winded. I get upset about it. Oh, Micronanthia. I just popped up on the screen. Um, There's um, the Fetal Medicine Foundation has a fantastic um, reference. If you haven't heard of that one before, the Fetal Medicine Foundation, Um, the prevalence of Micronanthia is one in fifteen hundred births. Okay. Um and Aaron I know you would like the science of this um recurrence. Um 25 to 50% of those cases red flag for genetic syndromes. Mhm. So if you have a child that has micrognathia and um you're having a hard time latching before we start saying oh it's just a tethered tissue issue, uh, we need to micrognathia is a um, uh, a recessed, shorter mandible, um, and that will cause an anterior replacement of a nipple because of craniofacial structure. Um, before we start cutting things, get that one checked. Okay.
1: Sorry. Also, Squirrel. no, I wanted to, um, or maybe I'll bring it up in our once we start talking about other stuff.
0: Okay. Okay. The, um, I had the prevalence of laryngomalasia that I wanted to cover. Um, and then this, I have two articles just on the prevalence of tongue tie or one right here. This is the one I wanted to cover. Okay. Um, the incidence and prevalence of tongue tie. Um, this was clinical lactation, volume 8, issue 3. There are numerous authors on here. Several are physicians, family medicines, and several are IBCLCs. Um, uh, the first author is Allison Hazelbaker. She is huge in the um, breastfeeding literature. Um, and I'm going to just it read has the
1: article. Their assessment that a lot of people use for tongue ties.
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. The exact prevalence of tongue tie is unknown. According to the current body of evidence, prevalence rates range from 0.1% to 10%, clustering around 3.5% to 5% of births. Okay. So if we take a subject sample and just analyze how many babies are born every year, um, and this lovely um, Australian neonatologist, um, he mounted a three-year study, Dr. David Todd, he's an Australian neonatologist, in his three-year study, his sample size was 9,478 babies, he found that an average of 4.83% of babies were, quote-unquote, tongue-tied requiring surgery. 5% had signs but were able to normalize function with management alone, okay? Okay. And that was, um, Todd 2014 and 2015. Okay. So two different articles. So then why are we seeing the increase? You see what I'm saying? Like out of 9,400 babies, only 4.83% actually clinically were indicated to have surgery. But yet here in the States, we've seen like, what did they say? A tenfold increase, um, again, this is why we need a holistic, um, -hmm. this is why we need a holistic evaluation. Okay. So before I bog down in the weeds again, I have gotten a lot of calls over the course of my career for an infant with a failure to thrive diagnosis. Okay. Because that's ultimately how typically SLPs get involved, right? We get a kid, failure to thrive, they're having difficulty gaining weight. Um, family reports difficulty latch at bottle, difficulty latch at breast. Um, often, when I get out there, what I find is that there is another etiology that has been missed. Often, I hear the parents report, "Well, we saw a CLC and um, we had their tongue tie clipped, and like it helped for like a week or two, but then it didn't." Mm-hmm because they didn't actually fix the real etiology in every single case I have been called out on. Um, I have found that the child had, um, laryngomalacia by time we got the kid to an excellent ENT. Okay. Um, and again, you have to go back to, um, uh, is somebody who specializes in aerodigestive tracts. So there's this article on um, types of laryngomalasias in children, interrelationship between clinical course and comorbid conditions. Um, it was published October eighth, 2016, European archives of otolaryngology. Um, all right, it's out of Europe. I get it. It's not the States. But um, the prevalence in this research study, the prevalence of clinically relevant laryngomalasia was 1 in 2,600 to 3,100 newborns, OK? Here's the catch. Clinical course of laryngomalaysia cannot be anticipated on the basis of solely endoscopic evaluation of the larynx. Comorbidities and prematurity increase the risks of other airway malaysia, other airway malaysia being bronchomalacia or tracheomalacia. And what I found kind of interesting, the prevalence of laryngomalaysia is relatively high in the middle to south part of Poland. Okay, so break down this research article, which was really freaking cool because that's how nerdy I am. Um, uh, Prevalence of laryngomalacia is higher than what we think. Um, uh, If if you compare it to actual um, uh, um, quote unquote tongue ties, it's you're more likely to have an infant that has one of the four types of laryngomalacia than you are to have a true oral tethered tissue issue that needs to be cut, cut or clipped, um, laser or good old fashioned scissors. (laughs) Sorry. Um, and, um, there are variations within, um, um, how it's diagnosed. If you have an infant or a toddler sitting upright and you just place a scope in, it's basically just taking a picture. You're not actually seeing it functioning and moving. If you have an infant that's side laying, nursing at breast, then you can see how the laryngomalacia is impacting um, the swallowing. Mm -hmm. If you have a sleep study um, and then you go into the OR and the infant is asleep and you run the flexible scope in because it has to be um, assessed with a flexible scope because the catch is when they do a rigid scope, um, it actually already pulls the mandible out of place in order to get in, but if they, um, so it already like manipulates the, um, airway into an abnormal position. So you wouldn't be able to tell whether it is really laryngomalaysia. I mean, those are different factors, but those are the factors that we're missing. Okay. And this is the other one that blew my mind. Um, laryngomalaysia. Oh, here it is. Malaysia is the most common cause of chronic inspiratory noise in infants. And infants with Malaysia have a higher incidence of gastroesophageal reflux. Um, and it's um, due to um, negative inter- thoracic pressures, blah, 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 fancy way of saying um, the negative airway actually pulls, that's created by the Malaysia actually pulls the UES open. And that causes the kid to have GERD events. Okay. Um, it was Stephanie Levinsky, desire MD, chief editor of, um, general medicine. Hold on. I'll find, I'll find this, the article. Okay. So that's a lot, but huh, I, 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 Katie, I can hear you all the way out in the Midwest saying that like I jackhammered through this one, but like, <laughs> well,
1: and <laughs> I think like you talk about the assessments that they have. And a lot like the Hazelbacher uses like functional items. Are they able to have cupping of the tongue? Are they able to lateralize? But if we're not, like you always say, if we're not assessing these motor functions within the context of them being functional, like within the context of the feeding of them feeding within the context of if you're looking at speech, then it's a different motor pathway. So just because they can't cup, they're not cupping at your finger doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to cup correctly at breast or like that non-nutritive suck versus or, nutritive suck, yes. or the way that their tongue looks when they're crying. Like that doesn't necessarily to equate the way they're able to lift their tongue when they're feeding. And I think that that's something we have to be very aware of because and we're not saying that, like we said, there's evidence to show that there are children that require getting their tongue clipped because that was the answer. But, you know, you think about kids that you hear them clicking and you're like, you know, that can sometimes be a sign of a tongue tie. But also, is that flow rate too fast? Are they unlatching because they're having difficulties? Are they aspirating? Like there's there are a lot of other things that mm-hmm. you need to look into submucus cleft. sorry, mm-hmm. a is it a submucus cleft that's been missed yep and and kids are I mean, these are babies. they're going to do what is going to protect them and what is safe mm-hmm. and what they need. And so I mean, I remember seeing a kid that constantly had their tongue at the roof of their mouth, and you're like, why do they have their tongue at the roof of their mouth because they're trying to breathe. Or you have kids – I'm also very leery with a lot of kids that have reflux because a lot of kids that have reflux are going to posture their tongue back further almost as a reaction to try and stop that reflux from coming back up. But yet it looks like their tongue is at this posterior position at rest. But that is a function of them protecting from something else that's going on that if we're just looking oral motor our oral mech exam – we're missing that whole factor. And yes, maybe we're not giving too many answers and we're saying that there's so many other things that you have to look at. But if you're going into feeding, that's that's your life. So <laughs> you have to yep. look at every, like there's no, and that's I think the hard part with tongue ties is we want these assessments. This is the assessment. They, lo- they have a tongue tie, let's get it clipped. It's going to fix. But like no feeding kit is clear cut. I mean, there may be a few that, just need their tongue clipping and that's clear cut, but like we're saying that's very we, even it was, far it was, in between. Yes. And 5%. Right. And aside from just the like Pierre Robin kids, there are other problems that that can be caused by clipping their tongue. You think about the nerves. Nerves are very, very close to your frenulum and your tongue. And if you nick a part of a nerve that can cause problems with taste that can cause problems with we need that sensory feedback to move our tongue. So if if their nerve is impacted and they're not getting that sensory feedback, that can also cause even more problems for their tongue movement with their feeding and their speech and and different things like that. So it it's just something to be very aware of and and monitor because you can, you know, there can be negatives to something that seems very simple. Yep.
0: I'm just, I'm just in awe that um, you get it. (laughs)
1: Like, well, I'm Um, someone like, it it has to make sense. You, you know, if some of, sometimes it doesn't, if something doesn't make sense and you're just doing it because it's a culture. Yeah. And, and, but even then, I mean, just question things and, and dig deep into their whole picture because if, if a kid's protective mechanism for their reflux is holding their tongue posteriorly and then you cut that frenulum and they've lost that, not just from a tongue movement standpoint, but from a comfort and a um, ability to protect themselves that can cause them to have a negative experience and make feeding even more negative And that can spiral. Um, and that's just one example, but just an example of, there are so many other things that can be going on too that just make sure you're looking at all of those factors. And then if you determine that they need to get that frenulectomy, then absolutely. But it's, it's a, it's a team decision.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and- Honestly, it
0: took me a lot longer to get to that realization than and so like I it just it makes me so proud that you're just like you just get it and well, you're like this got in your career and like yay. <laughs> I
1: remember right when I started my CF um I was shadowing one of the other therapists and and someone um brought it wasn't the therapist, it was someone they were talking about this kid possibly having a tongue tie. And our favorite ENT said to – I think it was – I don't know who he said this to or um, whether it was the – I don't think it was the EI, but it was another therapist mentioned something. It said, well, the ENT asked me what I think about the tongue tie, like what it's doing, like if I think it should be clipped or what I think – It's doing. And she was like, Isn't that his job? And I was like, That's a very great ENT to ask the speech therapist, What functionally are you noticing that this is causing problems for him? Because if it's not causing problems, I'm not going to clip it. And the, I forget if it was who it was that made it. She's like, Why would he ask that? Shouldn't he know this is his job? And I was like, That's a team that's working together. And he's just – look. he's looking at the tongue at just the anatomy at a standstill point in time. He's not seeing that child eat, seeing that child try and communicate and seeing um, that child at bottle or breast. So that was the first time I was like – I was – because I hadn't had a ton of experience with tongue ties at that point. And it was interesting for me because at first I was like, oh, he's the ENT, shouldn't he know? And I was like, no, that makes complete sense mm-hmm. that he's asking those questions. OK, so team partners, partners that we can have on our
0: team to actually assess whether or not the tethered tissue is the root cause. And you have to do, I'll wear my husband's engineering hat. You have to do a root cause analysis. When you hear a click that's not necessarily a tongue or lip tie, that could be a shallow latch. It could be a shallow latch due to positioning on bottle or breast. It could be a shallow latch due to um, neurologic underlying um they don't have, um, maybe they don't have full range of motion because um, they had an interventricular hemorrhage that was missed or not diagnosed or not known to be looked at. Um, so, Erin, we have um, neurologist. We have pulmonologist. We mm-hmm. have ENT, IBC, LC, or um, CLC, um, uh, GI I mean, mm-hmm. if you've got, if you have Malaysia that's legitimately opening the UES, well, it could be, or, or if you have hypertrophy of the adenoid tissues, which gets us back to the ENT, that's like pulling the UES open, um, until that kid could get in for surgery, they may want to do a little bit of, um, um, uh, positional changes. Um, I know most of the PPIs, a lot of the PPIs have been pulled off the market, but positional changes to actually get that looked at, um, uh, Allergist, does this child have a milk protein or soy allergy if they're on certain types of formulas? And that's causing um, upper respiratory infections. That's causing inflammation of the um, uh, hypopharynx, um, inflammation in the tissue that um, is contributing to lower malasia um, If that dude, if the infant pops out and we start with eczema right out the gate, you better get that baby to an allergist lickety split. Um, the speech pathologist, the occupational therapist, the physical therapist for positioning to, um, to rule out um uh, torticollis or shortening, tightening of the sternocleidomastoid. What if the kid broke their clavicle? Um, what if there's a hernia? Um, what if they have a shallow latch? Um, GI. I'm thinking esophageal um, motility strictures. Uh, what if they have a hiatal hernia? Um, due to complications from delivery. If, I mean, I'm I'm there are so many factors okay there's the story that i tell if you don't have it on your phone um please download it it's the asha community app y'all before you get online and post a question onto the facebook forums please check out the asha community app and consider posing a question there because the greats in our field will answer your questions and it's actually monitored by, um, especially the feeding questions, they're monitored by SIG 13. So, mm-hmm. you know, and the the, answer- they
1: answer them a ton. Like yeah. Dr. Coyle answers them, Catherine Shaker answers a bunch of questions. Yeah. Um, it, but they get on there and they give you
0: evidence. Okay.
1: Not saying these Facebook groups, like I'm on a bunch of them, they're great. They yeah. allow support. People can ask questions that may not know, but like, go ahead with the where, ASHA.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, but I was just going to say, but where is their evidence? Like when you post it on the ASHA community app, they'll throw a couple research articles to refill your cup, right? And, and also sometimes, I mean, some of the Facebook pages, they just get really ugly. <laughs> and there's so much ugly in the world right now. I need the joy. I mean, some of them are absolutely joyful. Oh, there's, um, there's a really funny one that I came across and I can't remember, but it was like, I don't remember what it was called, but it was like a funny SLP Facebook one with like all the inappropriate, joyful, silly memes. This is wonderful. But like, please bear in mind when you post a question, that you want to make sure that you're giving it to a community of colleagues that have the skill set. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I have no way of growing. I want to be in a room filled with colleagues who know more than me to help me grow professionally. Um, and also check um, BCSS community, the board certified specialty in swallowing. Um, their community Facebook page has like the who's who in the world. Um, I'm trying to think, what other resource do you have? Um I don't know. We threw a lot out there.
1: Yeah, I mean a lot of articles, a lot of Asha on um, I think mm-hmm. each other, but mm-hmm. Break out when you have questions, but make sure that, you know, you have all the information and that you're looking at the evidence. Mm -hmm.
0: And and don't be afraid of asking a question. If you're in a culture where asking a question is um, frowned upon, then you need to take a good hard look at where you're at. Because we should be able to ask questions to build each other up. It shouldn't be a culture of fear. It shouldn't be a toxic culture of this is how we always do things or you have to conform to this way. If somebody cannot provide you the evidence, then we have a problem. And sometimes you can affect change by being there and presenting data. And then sometimes in our absence, we can make waves of positivity. And that is profound and beautiful so um huzzah for an island <laughs> it's populated <laughs> we're growing it
1: i Oregon. feel like my island is growing it is it's nice it to is. be in a good place with good people yeah Oh, that's the God's honest truth, hon.
0: Huh? Okay. All right. So what we didn't cover in this episode includes certified or a facial myologist, because that is honestly an episode in and of itself. And it's something that's on my per- personal professional to-do list, um, because it is not non-speech oral motor exercises. It is in fact, addressing the underlying fascia, which we have in all our bodies. And there's a significant body of evidence, ha 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 body. Um, how it can positively impact individuals of all ages, including adults with chronic TMJ and obstructive sleep apnea. Um, so stay tuned for that episode coming up. Um, two folks that I'm a huge fan of that do it. Um, Linda Diofreno. Um, I can't ever say hers. She, um, she has purple hair. It's salt and pepper and purple. And she is just utterly, a light, whatever room she walks into and Sandra Holtzman out of Florida. Um, she's, she's a petite little powerhouse and incredibly wise. And I do want to learn more from them. Um, Also, in unrelated and joyful news, SpeechTherapyPD.com is excited to announce that um, with Cash's encouragement um, and the overwhelming positive response to the teletherapy boot camp that we offered a few weeks ago, um, starting Friday, April 24th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're going to host a new podcast pod course series called Talking Teletherapy. Um, Yours truly, I'm going to be hosting the first four episodes interviewing subject matter experts. Um, We've got um, a live training on Zoom, a um, Carrie Clark, uh, one on stress management. And then another one following up on AAC. Um, but it's going to be a bunch of different hosts. So Marisha Metz will be hosting a couple. I believe Liam Porter with Speech Uncensored will be hosting. Um, so basically, it's one functional episode a week addressing teletherapy because we're all still trying to figure this out um, uh, until, well, until, until this great pause is passed. So be sure to check us out on Friday, April 24th. Um, And Erin, thank you for um, speaking this episode into reality because I know you've been saying we need to do it. And honestly, I was afraid that I would, like, sound really frustrated and angry and, like, not get be able to present a cohesive argument. So thank you for championing um, all the feels. Yay. Always. Always. All right, let me switch to questions. Hold on. Feeding Matters guides system wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So, what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas education, advocacy, and research. So, who is the alliance? It's you. be kind and feed those babies.